Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red, who's currently making weird face expressions. How are you, Ben? I'm just super excited to be back again this week. Uh, this week was sort of slow. We had three days, Eid, at least for like a, a lot of people, a lot of state employees and, and whatnot. Um, instead of the like normal two or whatever, people got all three. So that's really nice. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, this was really marred by, at the very beginning of Eid. On Monday night, Tuesday morning, we had an, uh, an attack up in Tripoli. Uh, four service members were killed in this. Uh, and, and this was sort of like the, the big story of this week. And so I'd, I, mm. I think we should go through it and and sort of explain what we know. And, and we don't know everything right now. Uh, I think we yeah. should be upfront about it. We're recording this on Saturday. Uh, and as of right now, we have a pretty good handle on some of the thing on some of the things, but we really there are a lot of questions I think that are still unanswered. Um, yesterday, uh, Friday, Interior Minister Raya Hassan came out and sort of like laid out, uh, you know, sort of like a timeline, walked walked uh, mm-hmm. the country through exactly what had happened. Um, and so I, I think it would be a good idea for us to go through that very quickly right now. Yeah. On, on Monday night at around 11 p.m. Uh, up in Tripoli, the assailant it was a lone assailant. And uh, he uh, first off, he threw a grenade at the Sarai, the, the governmental palace in Tripoli. And then he head off, headed off towards Mina, which is sort of like on the, the coastal area of Tripoli, where he opened fire on an internal security forces vehicle, fatally wounding Lance Corporal Jani Khalil and Private Yusuf Faraj. He then went towards the port and then he opened fire again on an, on an army vehicle this time and he killed uh, Private Ibrahim Saleh. And then he went up to uh, the roof of a residential building. This building was then surrounded by the army, uh, army intelligence uh, and the ISF's information branch. And he threw a grenade and opened fire and uh, First Lieutenant uh, Hassan Farhat was killed. And then he retreated inside that very same building, breaking into an apartment on the fourth floor. And security forces raided the apartment. He tried to throw another grenade, uh, but he was shot dead. This is all according to the interior minister, uh, mm-hmm. the, this sequence of events. And so we don't know exactly what all happened here, but we, we have some information on like the assailant as well. Uh, his name, Abdurrahman Mabsut, he, he was born in 1992. So he's actually really young, right? He's just 26, 27 years old, something like that. You know, not super old. Uh, he, he had reportedly fought with Daesh in Syria. He had gone to Idlib via Turkey in 2016 and was trained there. This this information here is, again, from uh, Rayal Hassan. Then he returned to Turkey. Turkish authorities arrested him, deported him back to Lebanon. And upon his return, he was investigated by the information branch and referred to the military tribunal, who sentenced him to one and a half years in prison. And then he was released one and a half years later supposedly uh, from Rumier prison in 2017. So what was the charge against him? From what I understand, it was related to his uh, activities while in Syria, basically committing some sort of terrorism, but outside of Lebanon. One of the reasons that I think we don't quite have the full picture yet is because, well, number one, not everything quite holds together for me quite yet. And number two, there's just like a, a million rumors flying around, right? For one thing, this timeline. So he went to Syria in 2016, but then he was released in, from Rumier in 2017. But in that two-year period, he was in Rumier for one and a half years. And so how much time could he possibly have spent in Syria? Well, half a year maximum minus travel time minus investigation and and sentencing and you know the trial all of that stuff 
I, I don't know. Was he? Did he even actually do anything in Syria? I I don't know. Or or on the other hand, there are all these rumors talking about how like maybe he was you know somebody paid bail for him. Various politicians you know being accused of paying bail for him. So maybe he got out early. So maybe this timeline actually does make sense. Uh, mm -hmm. But as of right now, at least I haven't seen the answers that really, uh, you know, make you think, oh, we know everything about this. Mm -hmm. and, and then there's also just, you know, up in Tripoli, people s were saying, well, how th there was so much gunfire going on at the time. How could this possibly have been just like a lone, you know, attacker? Yeah. And I, I don't know, you know, maybe they have a point. So they were maybe su not. suspecting that there were many people involved and then they disappeared. Right. I'm, and I'm not sure that that's... Uh, if that's necessarily accurate, uh, because I mean, if one person can sort of like set off a chain reaction, so to speak, mm. uh, in, in these situations. But to me, one thing for sure is that he was trained on using the weapons because I mean, he was very lethal in his in his attack. You know, he killed four service members through la in three different attacks. So each time he was attacking them, he was actually able to kill people. He must be, uh, you know, he must have a good use of, of, of these military weapons. So he should be trained. Right, right. You would you would think. Yeah. yeah. One other thing on the timeline that I just like to mention is that, you know, a lot of people are saying, how the fuck did this guy get released? How, how did we let this dangerous prisoner out? You know, the implication being like, if somebody is locked up on terrorism charges, they should just be locked up forever, basically, uh, regardless of any other circumstances. But to me, if this timeline is accurate, and he was in Rumi for one and a half years, and was only in Syria for a short period of time before then, then maybe the problem isn't so much with the fact that he went to Syria and was already, you know, obviously somewhat radicalized beforehand. Maybe the problem is with Rumi prison. Like he clearly wasn't de-radicalized there. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I, I would like to ask you about this sort of like a larger question, I keep hearing the word terrorist, uh, and that this was a terrorist attack. Do you think that this was a terrorist attack, Nizar? I mean, if you think of terrorism as a, as, a, as a military strategy that is basically targeting civilians as a way of threatening states or to force states to take different positions on foreign policy or security policy or whatever, then no, because he was targeting security institutions. He was, he was targeting military men and, and police. Although um, some civilians did get hurt as well. Yeah, right? but I'm saying like the main target, you know, of the attacks. Uh, but on the other hand, if you think about it as, you know, what was the purpose behind this or what was the motivation of this person? It was to basically terrorize the society by targeting its, uh, its, um, its police force and its military people in order to advance a certain, you know, ideological project that considers this state and these institutions as the enemy. Yeah, I think that's a weak argument, though, right? Because then you, that could be applied to, you know, Palestinians who carry out attacks against like Israeli soldiers or something. Oh, they're trying to terrorize us through hitting them, that sort of a thing. And, yeah. and while that's sort of apples and oranges, right? Because one of them is occupation, one of them is not. It's still, to me, it seems like if we use the word terrorism here, we're sort of degrading. We're, we're playing into this sort of like right wing way of, of talking about terrorism and using it very, very loosely so that it can basically be applied to anything that goes against the state. Yeah, I understand your point. I think the, the, the need for the word terrorist in Lebanon in this case is that if you say a, mil a militia, if you say an armed man or whatever term you want to use, and a fundamentalist, whatever, it's not an insult. It's not a negative thing unless you say terrorist, until you say terrorist, right? Because you can be fundamentalist, but be, you know, in Hezbollah, or you can be, you know, uh, th this kind of fundamentalist, another kind, or you can be uh, an armed man who is, uh, who is fighting, as you're saying, fighting against the forces of the state, but a bad state. So 
it doesn't carry the same connotations as saying a terrorist and the terrorist is the public enemy so we need to use this we need to, we need to find a term that means public enemy and establishes that we condemn the actions maybe that has more nuance than terrorist but yeah that's a good question yeah and, and of, of course all of this is not to like take away any any of you know the respect or valor that you know those people who you know fought those people who died in in this incident have or or from you know this uh, Palestinian guy Sabur Murad for instance who was shot by the guy while trying to help protect people from the uh, from the attacker. Mm-hmm. Uh, side note: He's Palestinian, even though his mother's Lebanese. So that's been like a big thing that's uh, that a lot of people have been talking about, or a lot of people have not been talking about. Very pointedly, mm-hmm. it seems, and, and we'll we'll mention that again later. Um, but one final point that I just want to make on all of this is uh, people are sort of worried about the effect that this attack will have, you know, right at the beginning of summer on like tourism and stuff like that in Tripoli. L- let me just make this simple. That's fucking bullshit. Don't <laughs> don't if you're thinking of going to Tripoli, don't think that it's not safe now. A lot of times people will get scared away by like one small incident or something like that. But even when they were having the clashes between like Babatabene and Jabal Mohsen, a few years back in Tripoli, it was still, you could actually go to the city and most of the city was actually very safe. And so like this one thing, if you were going to go to Tripoli, just keep going. Don't be an idiot. Yeah. And it's not like there's an armed, you know, uprising by this big fundamentalist group against the state there. No, it's what we know so far and what we've seen is that it's an individual or very small act, uh, although it had very big consequences. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to keep visiting Tripoli. It's same. We also had a really big story out of the uh, valley uh, this week. A refugee camp was burned to the ground, basically, it, it appears. And, and this is a, a really, really weird story where you have this sort of like informal tented settlement outside of Deir al-Ahmar is the name of this village. And obviously tensions ran high and there was some sort of incident that caused everything to kick off uh, on Wednesday. We're not entirely, we, we've heard different things about this, right? It, I, I heard reports initially that it was because civil defense like firefighters were late to responding to a fire in the settlement or something and then people got really mad and attacked the truck which didn't really make a whole lot of sense but then other people uh, apparently some of the refugees told UNHCR that civil defense actually drove into tents that were had children in them and stuff like that which of course would set some people off but also there's rumors uh, or, or there's talk that Prior to this, there was also perhaps some sort of personal beef going on here that sort of led to all of this stuff. Yeah, to me, the timeline that makes sense from what we know, the different reports that we've seen is that civil defense arrived late because we saw many reports saying that it it cannot be out of nowhere. And then this uh, created some kind of personal altercations between the firefighter and uh, refugees who were waiting for the civil defense to arrive to turn off the fire that originally started in the camp. And then after this altercation, the uh, firefighter allegedly drove his truck into the tents, which also reportedly had children inside, as you said. And this led the residents of the refugees to um, react by destroying, not destroying, but kind of damaging the truck uh, and attacking the firefighter. Yeah. So the governor of Baal Bekhermel, Bashir Khurur, he ordered all Syrians to just stop moving, like stay put. You're not allowed to move. Uh, well, they moved anyway. L- local media said something like 700 refugees were displaced. UNHCR told the Daily Star, my publication, that it was more like 385. Re- regardless, they they moved. Um, and then the next night, Thursday night, Friday morning, this video started circulating um, that purported to show the camp just totally ablaze. 
the mayor of Deir al-Ahmar told my publication, uh, The Daily Star, that only a couple of tents were burned, although that's not really what it looks like in this video. Mm. Um, and also the mayor just told my colleague uh, Temur Asari a day earlier that his townspeople, they were going to go burn down the camp, quote unquote. And then like later that night, the camp burns down. It's, ah, it's, it's, it's really uh, ridiculous. Yeah, the hot weather is really ridiculous. It, 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 it always <laughs> happens at night. Yeah, yeah. No, but really, I mean, it's, fires. it's insane how uh, lightly we take the news of refugees being di- displaced from, uh, even if it's a temporary uh, home that they're living in, but just being displaced so easily, hundreds of families, it's just absolutely insane to me. Yeah, and and, and also just the uh, the way that we talk about it in the media we were talking about uh Sabur Murad one of the heroes of the, in the Tripoli attack the fact that he you know is not Lebanese was not usually mentioned in a lot of these no uh, actually you, you could see full articles about him not mentioning that he's Palestinian and that he he lived in Lebanon his whole life with a Lebanese mother and could not get the citizenship and that he was you know a Palestinian refugee after all uh, and you had this for example Tayyar article a Tayyar.org article it, that's uh, FPM's uh, mouthpiece exactly saying like um, yeah the the young man Sabir Murad the young man Sabir Murad not a mention of his nationality LBCI tweeted the news with like how, what did Sabir Murad do in Tripoli to stop the, uh, the terrorist incident and then another piece of news saying refugees attack fire truck in the Lahmar. you see th- this kind of thing the double standards of saying refugee when it, it matches the political agenda and not mentioning it when it doesn't exactly um, just a couple of notes really quickly the uh, Suzanne Haj Hobesh case which we talked about last week on this program mm. um, a lot of people were unhappy about the verdict she got off uh, that has been appealed um, and so we, we've talked about the military justice system before it's a justice system not just a single court so now it is being appealed from the regular old military court up to the military court of cassation the stories never end right uh, this is not the end of the road and we're going to keep hearing about what happened and what's going to happen in this case uh, in the weeks ahead. Also, Nizar Zaka, who is a Lebanese citizen who uh, has been detained in Iran for the last three, four years, almost four years, I believe now, he is supposed to be released. The foreign ministry, Lebanon's foreign ministry, announced it this past Tuesday, um, and it looks like it could be, by the time you're listening to this on Monday, he actually could be free. And so that that will be a resolution of a very uh, a years-long story that uh, has captivated uh, a lot of attention. One final thing from this week, we had the start of the budget hearings in Parliament's Finance and Budget Committee. The first hearing was on Monday, and then everybody was off for aid, of course. Uh, 53 MPs attended. This, this is a huge, uh, you know, like almost half of Parliament came to a committee meeting. <laughs> wow. which is which is insane they they had to like move the meeting like from the already like large hall into like the main hall of parliament so that, that, like that's a good there's a lot of interest here there's mps actually doing their jobs which i like uh <laughs> Um, So anyway, there's going to be nine hearings this week, one on Monday with uh, the finance minister, Ali Hassan Khalil, uh, and then two like morning and afternoon sessions, Tuesday through Friday. Uh, Ibrahim Karan, the the chair of the committee, expects to finish by mid-July, which gives him more time than last year. Like we thought it was going to be like sort of by the end of June, but they said, no, we're going to take a couple more weeks and look at this a little bit more in depth, which is a lot more than they did like, like last year. They they looked at the budget over a period of 12 days. They didn't even meet all 12 days. Two of those were Sundays. But oh, so over 10 days, 
they met something like 18 times and they just like blasted through the budget. It was the uh, panic before the sad conference. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and just one very quick note on that. The reason that we know that July, the mid-July is a real sort of number and not anything else is that uh, in their first meeting, the committee uh, voted on an extension to this provisional 12th facility, which is this emergency facility that is not supposed to be used at all. But because we don't have a 2019 budget and we're halfway through the year, well, we have to use something. So they voted to extend it until mid-July. And if you want to know more about this specific kind of procedure you can check the the episode on the budget where we we explain how this works but basically or yeah. or call me up i would love i love talking this is one of my favorite things to talk <laughs> about it's just so it's such a crazy story about unconstitutionality and budget rules like two of my favorite things in the world so yeah just give me a ring and let's have like an hour-long conversation about it okay enough about that our main topic for this week yay is the Lebanese forces. We're going to do, uh, I guess this is the third party profile, right? Uh, yes. we've, we've done the Amal movement. We've done the free patriotic movement. And now we are doing the Lebanese forces. Yeah. So basically let's go through like kind of the history of the, of the Lebanese forces, which basically most of it is during the war. This is how the Lebanese forces as a, as a term came to be. And we'll explain that. And, um, and also how it turned into like a political party today and, how it rose to prominence in the civil war and how it rose to prominence in the post-civil war uh, Lebanon as a political party. Right. This is like they sort of went the opposite way of a lot of other parties as far as they started out as a militia and then became a political party, right? Exactly. This is one of the most interesting things about uh, the Lebanese forces, you know, as opposed to Kata'ab or the Progressive Socialist Party or the Social Syrian Social Nationalist Party, etc. This was not an ideological party that was created and then a militia was created to fight the civil war. It was the opposite. It was born out of the civil war and then after the civil war and turned into a political party. We talked a lot about the creation of the LF in the episode on Bashir Jmail, episode 18, I believe. And Bashir Jmail was the founder of the Lebanese forces and he was the kind of the larger than life eternal icon for the Lebanese forces. Um, so go to that episode if you want to know more about like the details of how this happened, how Bashir Jmail himself rose to prominence and how they consolidated the Christian forces around the Lebanese forces as an organization. But to give a summary now, in the mid-70s, when the civil war happened, started, uh, the country was politically divided between the Lebanese national movement, basically con- cons- consisting of left-wing forces or um, Arabist, Arab nationalist forces, uh, mostly Muslims, and supporting the Palestinian factions and their cause. Um, Lebanon had, for five or six years, had a lot of Palestinian armed activity in Lebanon after the 1969 Cairo Accord. And on the other hand, you had the Lebanese Front, which is a coalition of Christian right-wing political parties that were concerned about the Palestinian presence in Lebanon and opposed to the left-wing project carried carried by, you know, Kamal Jumblat most prominently, but also the Lebanese Communist Party and other forces in that period of time. So there was a big ideological battle among, uh, you know, Lebanese factions, but also the Palestinian armed presence was a very, very major uh, component there. The Lebanese Front um, was led by three 
مين فيجرز فروم بيج بوليتيكال فاميليز بيير جميل هدف كتائب كميل شمعون هدف الاحرار ناشونال ليبريشن موفمنت ان سليمان فرنجي ليتر هدف مردا اند ذا فرونت كرييتد ان امبرلا اورجنايزيشن اند ذس از وير ذا وورد ليبنيز فورسز كمز فروم رايت ذا امبرلا ميليشيا ذات واز كرييتد تو كومباين اول اوف ذيس ديفرنت فاكشنز اوف ذيس ديفرنت بوليتيكال جروبس واز كولد ذا يونيفايد كوماند اوف ذا ليبنيز فورسز سو ات واز بيسيكلي تو كوردينيت ميليتري اوبريشنز سبيشلي ذات ات واز فيري ديفيكلت وور تو ويج اند ذي وير mostly losing against the left in the first two years and they needed something that would you know uh, coordinate all all of their uh, all of their operations and also mobilize resources etc Bashir Jmail who is Pierre's son had gone up in the ranks of the Kataeb to become its leader the leader of the militia of the Kataeb regulatory forces and then he became the head of the Lebanese forces and while remaining you know, a phalangist he was you know, a Kataeb member he was uh, growing kind of the militia organization into the main organization in which he operates and mobilizing people to join the LF um, not as a political party but as a militia uh, because this is what matters in civil wars right in time of war all you need is is a very strong militia with strong political decision making For the LF, the war basically, the civil war was about fighting many, many enemies. And this gave it its character, its, its positioning in politics. The first enemy was, was the Palestinian factions. A lot of battles and wars against the Palestinian factions, especially in the camps surrounding East Beirut uh, and Ashrafi, where the LF is based. And here we remember mostly the Palestinian camps in, the, in Carantina, uh, on the coast, and in Tel Zatar, near Mkellis. And uh, these, you know, battles involved a lot of massacres and sieges. They were, you know, heavy battles and they uh, they were the primary way in which East Beirut's people and young men were mobilized to join the war. And in the fight against, you know, the Palestinians, you also had the most notorious period, which is, uh, or event, which is uh, the massacre in Sabra and Shatila, 1982, after Bashir Jmail was uh, assassinated under Israeli kind of... patronage in which also we we know that you know phalanges or lf militiamen were the primary people who were responsible for it the other main enemy was the syrian regime in 1976 the syrian troops entered lebanon as part of the arab deterrent forces requested by christian leaders actually to support them to protect them against the, the left and the palestinians which were expanding then two years later you had accumulating tensions with the christian forces and in 1978 you had the 100 day war with the syrian troops uh, after they entered after they uh, kind of imposed a siege on east beirut and occupied several key points around it another big battle against the syrian troops was in 1981 the battle of zahli but obviously the major enemy the, the like apart from the palestinians and the syrians the lebanese factions that they were the ma- major enemy were the left or the muslim factions and the druze factions and uh, it was more dispersed across the country this kind of fighting, fighting obviously because Popula- this population is is dispersed in Lebanon and one major battle that people remember from the civil war where the Lebanese forces had uh, a key role is the mountain war the Harb uh, al-Jabal between the Druze led by the Progressive Socialist Party Wali Jumlat and the Christian forces led by Samir Jaja as head of the LF and this was one of the darkest kind of long wars of the war because of the, of the civil war because it was really social and it turned really social and it's you know manifestation it was like people in the same village fighting each other a lot of displacement and especially in Shufan Alay uh, the area where I come from where a lot of populations Christian and Druze but 
more Christian than Druze were permanently displaced or at least have never been gone back to living in their villages normally and moved to areas that are uh, almost 100% Christian and Metin or, uh, you know, near Sinilfil or whatever. Uh, so this was one of the battles or the wars that was uh, left the biggest kind of impact. Yeah, and, and and this is also one of those things that's, I guess, I guess harder. We're, we're going to talk a little bit later about sort of the LF and how the LF sees itself and their propaganda and stuff like that. But, you know, talking about fighting against Syria and fighting, you know, being the uh, resistance against like foreign occupiers is a lot easier sell than like going back and talking about your history about how, oh, yeah, no, well, we fought this war. We had to fight this war also against fellow Lebanese people. Yeah. One more thing to mention. The last enemy is current president Michel Aoun. Uh, in the last two years of the war, you had clashes between the LF and Aoun basically being the Lebanese National Army because he was the head of the National Army uh, and then he became, uh, you know, a self-proclaimed prime minister. Uh, during this period, you had many clashes and one a series of clashes was called the War of Elimination, basically Aoun wanting to eliminate LF, the LF militia. And there are a lot of, you know, stories about why and how these things happened. Uh, I advise our readers to just go and read some different articles that explain it because we can't go into the details now. Uh, but obviously, Aoun and the LF have very different stories and narratives around it. But uh, a good question here is to say, you know, where is Samir Jaja from all this? Because he's the, he seems to be the, the leader of the LF forever. So where is he in this story? Jaja was a strong militia man. He was kind of tasked with overseeing major wars, including the Montuan War, as we mentioned. But he was not a leader of the LF until one of the coup d'etats that happened within the organization took place in 1985 when he, uh, Eli Hbaya and Karim kind of did an uprising against Amin Jmail to seize the control of, of the political decision in the Christian area. This is how they described it, but it means, you know, take control of the militia and of uh, politi- the political leadership. And Hbaya became leader. He went on to sign a very controversial accord called the Tripartite Agreement or Accord in Damascus with Nabih Birri, Walid Jumblat, uh, and the Syrian regime, obviously, to end the civil war. But it kind of gave the Syrians a lot of influence over Lebanon, or this, is, this was the problem that a lot of people saw within the LF. And then you had another coup d'etat by Samir Jaja. And this is when Samir Jaja became the leader. He overthrew Hubeya. Hubeya fled in the beginning of 19. 19- 86 and Samir Jaja since then has been the leader of the Lebanese forces and after asserting leadership he has been credited with kind of expanding the militia and the organization of the LF into different sectors like the economy and uh, you know taxing people and managing trade and giving social services etc so he was kind of one of the minds behind this huge expansion of the LF in the last five six years of the civil war. So this was the first period in in LF's history, the Civil War period. And then from 1990 to 1994, after the Civil War, you know, you had the Taif Accord, the end of the militia work for everyone, uh, almost the end of the the explicit militia activities, and uh, Aoun being exiled to France, and pro-Syrian regime president Elias Lehrawi and Babda. So in this situation, Jaja did not take part in the government, uh, in the cabinets. He was offered two ministries, like he was offered ministries at two different points in 1990 and 1992, and uh, the, he refused to participate. The argument that we know today is that he was protesting the Syrian regime control of the political process. 
I don't know enough to know if there are more like, you know, little details about it that can reveal more. But we know that they were not part of the government. And until then, until 1992, uh, LFN Kata'ab were kind of very interconnected. The Kata'ab was the official political organization, while LF was more of a militia. And this ended when Jaja in 1992 ran for uh, Kata'ab's presidency and he lost for um, George Saadi, who after becoming president of the Kata'ab uh, kind of evicted or you know kicked out um, a large faction that was loyal to Jaja and other people in the LF. So basically this was the end of the... the... Yeah, I mean, Jaja had actually been on the Politburo, right? So this is a big deal that yeah. uh, finally like that, the, the schism was made complete basically at after this point definitely and in 1992 you had a parliamentary election uh alaf and kata both didn't run they boycotted the election and and i think around i read something that says 87 percent of christian electorates didn't participate it was like a big big boycott and obviously they didn't get any mps so um they were not part of the you know of the rule and that in that time and there were tensions, of course, with the regime, with the post-Raif regime, mainly because of things like, you know, uh, Syrian control of the political process or uh, bad electoral law or whatever, manipulated elections, but they were, did not take any military nature. But in 1994, things turned really, in a really, really bad direction. We had the bomb in, uh, in, Zoo, in Sayyid al-Najat Church, uh, Our Lady of Deliverance, I think, this is how it translated. And this bomb killed nine people, nine worshippers, and injured around 60. The government accused the LF of being behind it. So they, like, ordered or sponsored by the Syrian regime, they led, they ordered the dissolution of the Lebanese forces. So the party was banned. And its deputy chief, Fuad Malik, and then Samir Jaja were arrested. And Samir Jaja were arrested. He was accused of ordering the bombing in, in, in Zoo, but also accused of all, a lot of other things. So until then, he was benefiting from the pardon law that was uh, enacted after the Ta'if agreement in order to, you know, pardon the main militia leaders in Lebanon. So that they could be politicians, yeah. Exactly. And then at that point, things changed for him. They gave him all these charges like... The assassination of Rashid Karami in 1987, the murder of Dani Shamoun and his family in 1990, and other major crimes. And he was sentenced to death. It was commuted to hard labor. And he spent the period from 1994 till 2005 in prison in quite hard conditions. And Jaja was basically, as you said, the only militia leader who was spending time in jail for his civil war actions. Although he, is, he might be the most notorious one as a militia leader and the actions that he oversaw. But other militia leaders were basically becoming ministers and MPs and leading you know, normal political processes and enjoying the benefits of and the resources of the state while he was in jail, which is part of the victimhood, the victim narrative of the LF. You know, the, this was clearly unfair to, you know, to the Samir Jaja compared to other militia leaders. Yeah, but it's also fun to just note, you know, this is sort of the the seeds that we saw of, you know, last year's election campaign where like, oh, we don't want a, a farm, like a state, the, the idea being the, like a state that like divvies up all of this stuff amongst a bunch of different factions. Well, mm. that, that message in 2018 had its roots, had its seeds way back in the early 90s, mm-hmm. right? It's Samir Jaja being pure and true and not taking part in this farce and, and, and paying a really, really high cost for it at that time, right? Whereas all of the other people are getting in on the action, getting in on the corruption, all of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I want to make this point. I'm glad you made it. And it's it, it kind of feeds into the narrative that the LF is not really part of the ruling, ruling class in Lebanon today. 
so yeah, we had this period of time. Jaja was in prison and uh, LF was banned, but they continued to organize a bit underground and internationally. And you had a lot of protests by Christian activists from the LF and FPM together also against the Syrian regime. And the uh, August 7 incidents is part of this kind of period of time and this kind of actions. Um, but in 2005, another major historical turn in Lebanon with the Cedars Revolution or the uprising that overthrew or kicked out the Syrian regime from Lebanon, kicked out the Syrian troops from Lebanon. And obviously people who were supportive of Jaja and the LF were part of the movement, took major part of the mo- in the movement. And they, one of their main demands was to release uh, Jaja from jail. And he was indeed released. The parliament passed uh, an amnesty bill after March 14 forces. Uh, the anti-Syrian regime forces won the election in 2005. And this is where the OLF also got six seats in the parliament. Although Shaja was not really involved in this. He was, you know, getting medical care because of the harsh conditions in jail and all of the things. So he was not really the... the although he was obviously the figure that was leading everything, but uh, he was not really in the in the front of it. He was not, you know, running for parliamentary election or anything. And, and th- this is another thing that we see also. Uh, if you think about the Lebanese political parties in Lebanon, I think using the term political party is really a misnomer in most of the cases. It's, it really is sort of just like this... It's, it, it's a house, uh, you know... It's one political leader and his family and like the people who sort of revolve around them for the most part. And there are basically two exceptions to the rule that have, you know, very highly regularized party structures. And the leader is not the end all be all. That's Hezbollah and the LF. And and I think one of the reasons that the LF is that way is, is because of this. Like if if your leader is in solitary confinement under the Ministry of, Def- Ministry of Defense in Yerze mm-hmm. for was it 11 years, then you you have to find other ways to organize and you have to build up like something of a real party structure. Right. And and then yeah. you have to it, it, and you have to be effective at that. You have, you have to be able to win elections. Right. And they, yeah. they, they obviously did this and, and, and it worked out well in the 2005 elections. They won six seats. Exactly. And then after winning these six seats, they went into governments. And then since 2005, you know, till today, they've been in all governments except two with different amount of ministries, of course, depending on their size in parliament and other things. But they were only not present in Miqati's government in 19 in 2011, sorry, and in Tamam Salam's government in 2013. But then the thing you're saying, like the, the political organization, as opposed to the one man show thing, became really clear after 2009 because Samir Jaja, I think, had this very clear vision in mind to make the LF a fully functional political party that is not dependent on him as a person. And this is probably due to the fact that he doesn't have children, let's be honest. Like, the fact that he doesn't, he cannot give power to his child, his son, or whatever, is might be a major factor of why this institutional uh, road needed to happen. So we know, for example, that the next leader of the Lebanese forces is really unlikely to be from the Jaja family. You know, this is really important in Lebanon where you had very different stories in all major political parties. So yeah, after 2009, we had this big effort to change the the image of the party from a militia-based kind of movement to, to a fully functional and very modern political party that is, you know, a bit liberal, but also nationalist and friendlier to, you know, young people and their dreams, while also maintaining its political perspective that it was it always, always held in terms of like Lebanese nationalism and right-wing uh, policies on the economic side, of course. 
in 2012 you had a symbolic moment where they opened the membership to to everyone and they you know launched their manifesto we will go into that in a minute uh, and they you know announced the party structure and tried to expand their presence in universities and everywhere like basically turning into a full-blown civil society organization uh, like in terms of you know political party being mobilizing the civil society and uh, in 2012 as well we had another very different kind of event happening with the assassination attempt against Jaja. We don't know a lot about that, uh, but we know Jaja's narrative is that he was, you know, in his garden picking up flowers, and then when he was picking up flower, he heard two shots above his head from snipers, and then he got down on the ground, and then his security people dealt with it some way, and the snipers were very far, like four kilometers away, uh, had very advanced military weapons. This is the story that we know. We don't know who was behind it. Uh, Jaja didn't accuse anyone, but he said it was the continuation against of assassination attempts and assassinations against figures of the March 14 movement since 2005 since 2004 actually which yeah if you if you think that Lebanon has like turned a page in its history and like all of those assassination attempts from you know like the the aughts are over with well this was only seven years ago it's not that far in the past yeah and it was kind of an exception it was kind of out of nowhere you know we didn't really expect such a major assassination attempt and the coverage of it and how people discussed it they didn't take it seriously they didn't really take it seriously uh, in my opinion maybe partly because we don't know a lot about how it happened or maybe also because no one died or got injured or anything so yeah now that you know it's a full-blown party with like a manifesto and everything uh, basically we can summarize what it stands for because people want to understand what kind of party it is and it's not really easy to summarize its ideological positioning it's obviously on the right if you want to think about it on the, on the left right spectrum but the philosophy is more um, inspired by christianity focused on the individual and the five basic pillars of the manifesto are uh, listed as the human being first and here is a lot of things about in- individualism you know the sacred thing about the human being their soul and their dignity and the reason and this is what informs their uh, their decisions and their interactions with each other etc freedom being the basis of uh, Lebanese society and like the ultimate value that we should never let go of uh, the nation Lebanon being the final entity that is not questionable and that everyone in Lebanon should be belonging to this entity and believing in it. The constitutional state, meaning, you know, being a liberal democracy with the parliamentary representation. And interestingly enough, they have coexistence between Christians and Muslims as part of their, you know, the pillars of their manifesto. And this is really, like, interesting to me because, you know, they talk about balanced participation and interaction between the two kind of religious groups. And, you know, you see it very clearly how they're establishing and entrenching this division between Christian and Muslim, which is largely a civil war thing, as, you know, the basis for Lebanon in the future. And the sixth and last pillar, uh, sorry, I said five earlier, it's six. It's the rights of individuals and groups, meaning, you know, individual rights of free expression and dignity and private property and leisure and happiness, etc. And state rights in terms of sovereignty from foreign intervention and uh, attacks, independent national decision making, etc. Basically, everything you expect in a nationalist manifesto. But on the left-right spectrum, 
there's a lot of focus on like it's, it's a clear pro-capitalist kind of manifesto its support for the free market is very explicit it says I like this code it's just so indicative it says the success of any democracy is linked to the adoption of a free market economy which plays the role of the mediator in the distribution of resources creating the best environment for productivity so for the LF democracy and capitalism and free market capitalism are you know two things that can only exist together which is an interesting uh, which is an interesting thing to mention so explicitly in the manifesto and those interested we will put the link to the manifesto it's in Arabic uh, but you can translate it copy it and translate it whatever and you can see how uh, much in depth they went into how their support for the free market economy they have you know, all the principles of the free market economy that they support and and I, I think this is also interesting here just because that also I mean obviously this isn't the, the main point of it but it makes them look a lot more friendly to Western audiences especially the United States Anglophone audiences that like reading these kinds of things this is exactly the kind of stuff that I was brought up on right and and, and so it it's interesting that them as this Christian party they also have this apparently very pro-Western outlook at least as far as their economic policies go yeah as far as other policies go, I'm not so sure. Yeah, and this and here is a shocking point to a lot of people. On, in terms of social policies, the LF is not um, liberal, although it, it kind of tries to be a liberal party in how it looks. It's not really liberal. Uh, there's a study that uh, will be published soon by, by the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies that I did last year, and we asked different parties the positions on social issues and all other kind of policy issues. And on social issues, the LF was the only party, apart from Hezbollah, that was against things like the women's quota in parliament and the minimum age for marriage, things that are considered, you know, basic socially progressive uh, actions in Lebanon today. Um, So it's not really clear. Uh, They don't adopt a conservative ideology very clearly or a liberal one. So it's a really hybrid thing. But the two things that to me are fundamental about it are the support for capitalism and the support for Lebanon as a final national entity. I have to say that... um... The LF is one of those parties that very much impresses me, you know, as far as just like their structure goes. And just even if, you know, their politics don't necessarily align with mine, it it is very, very impressive. The like just machine that they have built and and it's, you know, a lot of the people, especially at the higher echelons are just very, very competent as well. Uh, in, mm-hmm. in carrying this stuff out, it's obvious that Samir Jaja is a very, very smart man and a very, very effective leader. And it's uh, it's funny to me because, and this sort of goes back to a point I made earlier, there's sort of like a mirror of a certain other party in Lebanon that is their biggest enemy. Exactly. The, the opposites are kind of similar in so many ways. Yeah, Hezbollah is the only other party that has this sort of like structure and has a like a real ideology, even though Hezbollah, they don't, I guess they aren't as Western friendly and they don't publish manifestos uh, <laughs> on, on their website, I don't think. At, at the same time, they still have that, that same thing, the, the same basic pieces of a really, really effective political party that is open to more people than just, you know, somebody whose dad got a job through Mm. there, you know, like, no, like for the Lebanese forces, they can actually recruit people because their pitch fundamentally, I I, I was in researching for, for this episode, I was looking through some propaganda and stuff like, and like some of their pitch is just like very heavy and like, we're the protectors of, you know, Christianity in the Middle East. And I, I don't think this is like an official thing from an LF body or anything, but that's something that strikes a chord, I think, in a lot of people. And it doesn't matter if your dad doesn't, 
if your dad is an LF or whatever, if you're young growing up, it doesn't matter if you're getting a job from the LF or somebody else, that's going to strike a chord and maybe you're going to join them. And the same way with Hezbollah, right? Yeah. Uh, and another main thing is the political consistency that they put forward as one of their main sources of credibility, right? Because the fights that they used to have against the Palestinian kind of uh, factions because you know if you if you talk if you look at their participation in the civil war and then after the civil war till today it's always first lebanese nationalism that has been consistent mostly aggressive towards foreign forces except for israel which to which you know they were allies during the civil war but you know opposition to the syrian regime which is always a prominent a matter of division and political division in Lebanon today, for example, between, you know, formerly March 8 forces and March 14 forces. So this consistent kind of pitch against the Syrian regime, against Hezbollah, very strong opposition to Hezbollah, uh, is, I think, their main source of political credibility. Because if you if you look, if you ask people why you're voting for LF, the first answer that I always get is, we need to vote for the only political force that is taking very, very strong stances against Hezbollah and is very committed to resolving the Hezbollah uh, military presence issue as you know a matter of Lebanese sovereignty and uh, and you know the continuation of the Lebanese uh, nation and and you know they're not going to sell out if Samir Jaja spent 11 years not selling out in prison he's not going to sell out now he's not he's not like almost every other Lebanese politician who's like Everybody thinks in the back of their minds, oh, if you pay them enough, then they'll switch their position on something. He won't. You can't. There's not enough money in the world, I don't think, that you give him to make him switch his position on, on in any of the fundamental tenets that he holds. Especially right? that the friends that he's made in the last, since he's been out of jail, are the sources of, you know, money. We're like... Saudi, yeah, yeah. Saudi Arabia being a major sponsor today and the United States and France being very close allies. This, these are the friends that Jaja made. So he know he knew how to, you know, put himself in a situation where he is the second biggest, like a relatively small political force, regionally speaking, but he has strong allies who back him. And when needed in the electoral campaigns, we saw all of these resources being spent. The money comes from somewhere. We don't know where, but, you know, it's a well-funded political entity and uh, the leadership is sponsored by international forces uh, but obviously so we're talking about a political movement that is reactionary and it's like and, and, and conservative and right-wing in a lot of ways uh, but on the Lebanese standards it's modern and it's technocrats kind of oriented bringing technocrats to ministers and uh, MPs so because we don't have this you know left-right political debate in Lebanon as the basis of political discussion we see a lot of people saying wow the LF is doing a great job because it's bringing competent technocratic people to government and when maybe this kind of political discussion course changes to discussion of policies and their implications and ideology we will see more and more critical perspectives on the LF as a right-wing party uh, for the future but today uh, the LF is still kind of considered the, the the opposition although it is in government because it's doing things a bit differently and also because it's uh, because its counterpart the the free patriotic movement the big political opponent in the Christian sphere is the new ruling Christian party you know they have most of the big spots and all the big ministries that they could get they got them they decide who heads all of the major state administrations now that go to Christians or Maronites and you know they have the largest representation 
population and the largest, the biggest capacity to distribute resources and jobs through the state. So they are kind of now the ruling elite and uh, LF is, is the technocratic kind of opposition to that. Uh, at the same time, it is in the government because it wants to prove that it has this technocratic kind of competent corruption free uh, record. Yeah, it's the uh, the resistance with an asterisk. <laughs> And yeah, um, so if we see the rise of, of class politics in the future, the LF will have to will have a major challenge to face because Basile is already kind of leading the right wing uh, movement in terms of neoliberal economics, but also anti-refugee and uh, anti-Syrian slash Palestinian rhetoric and also very strong sectarian rhetoric. So it's not clear how the LF can gain more grounds that it's, it already has, except if the FPM kind of disintegrates, because together now they kind of control most of the political, uh, the Christian political sphere. This is a, a question sort of, it's staring into a crystal ball, because we know there will be major changes uh, in the future once Michelle Aoun is no longer with us, and how that plays out. It's going to be an earthquake in Lebanese politics, but especially in Christian politics, right? And, and my sense is that the LF is just sitting on the sidelines, biding its time. Building the organization. It, exactly, exactly. Getting experience in government, all of these other things. And we'll see what plans they have w- once this tectonic shift takes place. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it for us. This topic we, we could talk for hours on. <laughs> totally. uh, it, it's uh, really fascinating. Um, but that's all the time we have. We will be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.